0: On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you, and they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash roadie. That's betterhelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. This going to be on scene at 2213
1: Gordon Road. you got to find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with it. On
0: the trolley side, just a little bit of fire like on
1: that. They way. clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us.
0: If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one-up each other. They're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public. Or as I like to call them, stories from the road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host Phil Klein, and on the podcast today, I am I am just really happy to be joined by retired Detective Vic Ferrari, uh, formerly of the NYPD. He spent 20 years serving ser- serving the big city. And, and now he's an author, and he writes some of the most interesting books I think you, you would ever have an opportunity to read. So uh, a couple of the titles, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department, uh, Grand Theft Auto, uh, the tell-all NYPD book about the uh, auto theft division where he, where he spent quite a bit of time. NYPD's Flying Cir- Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, and, and this one's probably not an NYPD book, although it may be, but it's Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die, which is probably the first one on my reading list just from the title. Uh, so Vic, you know, as I was saying before, we tell a lot of serious stories on here. We talk a lot about PTSD. And, uh, you and I got into a great conversation, I think after we recorded the last podcast. And, and I remember just laughing and, and just thinking to myself, if, uh, you know, if people didn't hear it firsthand, they probably wouldn't believe it. So I asked you to come back and and you were gracious enough to spend another, uh, you know, 45 minutes, half hour, 45 minutes with us telling some stories. So Vic, I'm going to turn the mic over to you and, and let's get this circus started. The the mic is yours. Share some stories, friend.
1: Well, first of all, Phil, thank you for so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. And like I said, you know, writing a book is just the beginning. You, you have to promote it and people like yourselves with your shows are nice enough to put me on and I greatly appreciate it. So uh, the last time we were talking off the air, uh, you had told me, you know, you worked for EMS and we were throwing around stories. So there's a story in my book, uh, the NYPD's flying circus cops, crime and chaos. And, uh, it was a housing cop I knew and, uh, early nineties and got a foot post up in Harlem. It's by the housing projects and it comes over as a cardiac. So he walks into the building, takes the elevator up to whatever floor. And what it was is you had this elderly gentleman that passed in his apartment. He was friends with the super or a neighbor of the building. So when he didn't come to meet this person for coffee or pick up his newspapers, they knew immediately something was wrong. They gained access to the apartment and they find this gentleman passed in his bed. Now, he hadn't been dead a long time. So the cop gets on the radio. He calls for the supervisor. He calls EMS. EMS shows up. They go, yep, he's dead you know, Dominus Fulbiscum. And in New York, even though EMS declares the person dead, the medical examiner's office has to come. And there's, there's going to be an investigation. Detectives show up. They're going to call the doctor up. They're going to ask. They're going to look at his medication to make sure he wasn't poisoned. They're going to look for signs of foul play. Even after the detectives are done, the medical examiner still has to come. And in New York, you've only got one or two medical examiners working at a time. And there's people dropping dead all over New York City, natural and some unnatural. So usually what'll happen is we call it sitting on a DOA. So the first cop that responds or the first two cops that respond, you have to stay in this apartment with this dead person. And it can be, I mean, it's usually never under three hours. I mean, it can go six, seven hours, eight hours. And you're just sitting there and you open the windows because the person's decomposing in the apartment. The medical examiner is going to show up and he's going to say one of two things. He's going to say, suspicious death. Um, we're going to call the morgue and They'll take him out of here in a little while. Or, yeah, I, I think this is not a suspicious death. So tell the family they can call a funeral home. And, you know, dispose of the body. So this guy lived alone, had no family. And as the EMS guys are leaving, it's a Friday night. And this cop does not want to get stuck for 10 hours with this dead body. So he, he wants to go out drinking with his buddies. So he tells the two EMS workers, he goes, hey, would you guys mind um, taking him out of here? And they said, well, we can't do that. The only way we can move a body and take it to the morgue is if it was in public view, like he dropped dead in the street. He goes, show out of that. You got to wait for the medical examiner. Cop got pissed off. They leave. And about 20 minutes, a half hour later, comes over the radio, same building, same floor, cardiac. Same two EMS workers are down the block. They must have gotten a slice of pizza or they were down the block just sitting in the ambulance. They come running into the building with all their shit. They get up the elevator. They come running down the hallway. And what do they see? the same cop they just dealt with 20 minutes ago and the same dead guy that was in the bed. Now he's laying in the fucking hallway dumped like sideways on the floor. And they go, what the fuck is this? And he goes, you're not going to believe this. After you guys left, I was sitting there reading the paper. The fucking guy jumped up and said, Oh shit. He ran through the apartment. He opened the door and he died again in the hallway. And they go, get the fuck out of here. So they're arguing back and forth. Supervisor responds. Obviously the two EMS workers, Story was a hell of a lot more feasible than, than a guy with rigor mortis d- dead in the hallway. So what wound up happening is, I mean, if this would have happened nowadays, it would have been the front page of the Daily News, the New York Post, and the cop would have gotten fired and possibly charged with a crime. Back then, he lost 30 vacation days. They put him on a year probation and they, they transferred him out of borough. So there's a big process. There's a whole process when somebody dies and that usually it usually is tasked with the rookie cops in the precinct. It's low man on the totem pole, the NYPD, all the shit assignments, the rookies are going to get. So I got a funny story about a DOA Uh, early in my career. I'm just out of field training. I'm working in the heart of the South Bronx. I come in for midnight and they say, Hey Ferrari, you got to go up to Freeman Avenue, somewhere up in the four 2 um, you, you got to deal away. You got to relieve the four to 12 cop. He said, all right. So the two cops that take me up there, you want a cup of coffee, kid? You want something to eat? I'm like, no, nah, I'm all right. I go upstairs. I change places with the cop that's up there. And it was an old man, probably in his seventies. He died in the hallway of his apartment, right? So, I mean, the guy was dead probably about, about seven or eight hours. He's starting to smell. It's it's middle of the summer. I open up the windows already open. I can hear the train running by and stuff. It's hot. doesn't have air conditioning. So when, you know, there's nothing really for me to do, but you start looking around the apartment. You want to get a feel of what this, I mean, you're going to be spending time with this dead person. You just, for me, I just, I walked over the television set and I looked at the photos. I looked at the photos on his dress. I was just trying to, to, for my own process, like, what this person was like, you know, that I got to safeguard this body until the medical examiner arrives. So about 45 minutes later, there's a knock on the door. And there's this old man at the door. And I said, hi, he, I says, um, you can't come in. He says, well, he goes, I live upstairs. This is my brother. I says, Oh Christ, I'm sorry. He goes, yeah, I was here before. I was actually the one that found my brother earlier. I went back upstairs. I said, well, come in, come in, come in. So we're talking and he's telling me about, you know, him and his brother, they grew up in North or South Carolina when they were young, they moved up to New York City. They both became bus drivers. they have since retired. They live in the same building. Neither one of them married. They, they, they depend on each other. You know, They're both in their late 70s, early 80s. So the old man walks over to the refrigerator, and he pops open the refrigerator, and he pulls out two beers. And I'm just looking at him, and he puts the beer down on the table, and he motions me over. And I go, oh, uh, sir, I can't. <laughs> and he goes, son, I'm not drinking alone tonight. And he pops open the beer. Now, I'm on probation. You can get fired for this on probation. But, I mean, who am I to tell this old guy that he can't, you know. So I'm sitting there pounding beers with this old man. You know, we're in this apartment with a dead guy. It smells. It's hot as balls. And we're just drinking beer. And he's telling me his life story. Right? About four or five hours later, there's a knock on the door. This 300 pounds, you would think some, you would think a medical examiner would take better care of himself considering, you know, this, they're doing autopsies all the time and they see the shit that's inside of us. This big fat guy, you know, a medical examiner, like 300 pounds. He's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He's eating a fucking slice of pizza, right? <laughs> this is my first, my first time with a medical examiner. He comes in, walks in with the cigarette, says hello to the old man. He goes, yep. Okay. All right. Yeah. You can call the funeral home. And he leaves. So I'm just standing there and I was like, all right, sir. I said, um, I said, you can call the funeral home now. Right. So I'm hanging out. The funeral home came like they, they were there like within 45 minutes. They show up, they take the body out. I get on the radio and I call for a sector car to bring me back to the station house. And, uh, the old man says, hands me another beer. He goes, take one for the road. I says, no, I can't. He says, no, I goes for the next time I see you. And I was like, okay. And I'm saying to myself, Am I looking into this too much? Like, is he saying to me, He's old. He was actually older than the brother that died. Is he saying, You know, I hope you're the one that comes when I pass, and you take care of this for me? But just the way he said it he goes for the next time I see you, you know. And I was like, it just, it wasn't lost on me. Let's just put it that way. It was eerie. But uh, and I never really I never knew what happened to the man. I I didn't follow up on it. I mean, I was 22 years old, running around the South Bronx, making arrests and handling dirty radio runs a day, you know, so it was kind of lost on me. But it's just people don't realize, like in New York with the cops, when somebody dies, there's a whole process you got to do
0: yeah, and sitting on those bodies, especially in the summertime, a lot of those apartments don't have air conditioning. and you know sometimes those bodies have been in there for several days, and you know what that smells like. And uh, you smell the, the burned coffee ground on the stove and you know windows open trying to trying anything just to clear that out. It, it certainly is a process, especially in the summertime in New York City. There's nothing else like it.
1: Oh, yeah. and in New York, so you have to search the body to make sure if they carried if they carried identification, jewelry. Um, they, they want all that stuff safeguarded. So, I mean, there's people that drop dead and, you know, they drop, die in bed, die on the floor and they're dead for days. And what happens is the gases in your body, you start to swell all the gases in your body. You start to, you get bloated. So, you know, you don't want, you don't want to search somebody and they pop on. So we would throw, um, a sheet or a blanket over the person, kind of rock them and then just get back. And you'd hear, like, it sounded like a fart sometimes. And, you know, just like that oozing smell, which would make it worse. And then, you know, the old time is throw you a set of gloves. Go ahead, kid. You know, when you put on, and it's like this person is melting. And, I mean, it's stuff of a horror movie, really.
0: Well, go ahead and, uh, you know, tell me something else that doesn't involve a dead body in a hallway and uh, pounding beers.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Let's. I know. Sorry to drag a dead dog in the room. So we're telling EMS stories. So all right, I got. I got a couple of EMS stories. So I grew up in a neighborhood. There was drugs all over the place, but you know, I, I never saw anybody overdose. And uh, you know, you're a cop in New York City. You're going to see people overdose. Not like now with uh, fentanyl and everything, but we had heroin. And uh, the first time I saw somebody overdose. I got called to the Franklin Avenue men's shelter, which was an old armory. It's like the seventh ring of hell. All those homeless shelters are like the seventh ring of hell. I mean, it's bedlam. It's loud. It smells like piss. There's fucking people cutting each other. It's, it's like a fucking prison movie without bars. So I get called to, to an overdose and there's this skinny Spanish guys, probably, probably 30, but look 50. He's laying on the floor and it's like, he looked like, um, what's her name in Pulp Fiction, Uma Thurman, like her eyes are turned back and there's like foam coming out of his nose. I'm not giving this motherfucker mouth to mouth. I mean, this is this is the, in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. So EMS shows up and I'm a rookie cop and I'm like, I don't know what to do really. And they go, all right, what, what is it? Heroin? All right. And the guy goes into his bag of tricks and hits him with a shot of Narcan. And if you've ever saw the movie Ghost, you ever see that movie Ghost where the ghost gets sick? Because what Narcan does is, so you overdose, right? Your body is filled with opiates and it's shutting your system down. That Narcan is like um, like shocking your pool. What it does is instantly neutralizes all the opiates in your body. So what happens is they're half dead, their heart's slowing down, their body is just filled with this junk, and and what the Narcan does is it just neutralizes it instantly. That's good. The bad thing is they go into w- instant withdrawal. So now all of a sudden it's like they, the guy is dead on the floor and then he gets up and he starts uh, swinging and fighting and throwing up. Another time I was in Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, right? I'm with this this female cop. She got something in her fucking eye. We're in the emergency room and they're trying to get this shit out of her eye. And the next gurney over, the next little, you know, they pull that little. Bullshit petition, right? And I'll never forget the guy's name was Mr. Blunt. And I'm not worried about being sued because he's got to be dead, this fucking guy. So this is like, oh, God, 90, 91. We're in Columbia, Presbyterian. And I hear the nurse. And she's got the patience of a saint. She's like, Mr. Blunt, what's wrong? And the guy is high. He's not overdosing, but he's high. And what he did was he just came into the emergency room to get off the street. And he, he gave some bullshit ailment. And he's all snuggled up with a blanket on the gurney. And she's like, Mr. Blunt, what is the problem? And the guy is just shitting all over. He's ignoring it. So the doctor comes in. He asks Mr. Blunt, same thing. The, the doctor goes, fuck this. Give me, and I don't know what the dosage is. Give me 200 cc's of Narcan, right? And I went, oh, shit. And the female cop I'm working with, I says, get off that gurney. She goes, why? I says, just get the fuck away from me. She goes, why? I says, because he's going to start fucking getting sick. They hit him with that Narcan. Mr. Blunt jumped up like it was like a Halloween thing. Wah! The guy jumped up on the fucking gurney and is throwing, he's in withdrawal and he's throwing up against the side of the wall like a fire hose. And I'll never forget the nurse goes, Would you do that in your house? I'm like, Lady, he's fucking homeless. Like, you know, it, it, he pisses and shits in the street. He doesn't
0: care about your emergency room. <laughs> yeah, you know, a part of that is they just, you know, whatever these homeless guys that are, that are that are on the heroin, at least back then, you know, they scrambled up whatever they could to get this money. They get this high, they're, they're they're doing all right, and bam, instantaneously, that high is gone, that money is wasted, and they're not getting it back. So we got a little smarter as we got older, and we we wouldn't give the full two milligrams of Narcan in one shot, um, unless. Unless the ER nurses that we were dealing with that night were assholes. Because if that was the case, we'd, we'd keep them alive just just so they were breathing. And then right as we wheeled them in, we'd slam two milligrams of Narcan and watch that guy just go batshit the second we got him into the ER. Because now it's not our problem anymore. Now it's the ER's problem. And that was our payback for nurses that were assholes. And that didn't happen quite. It didn't happen a lot. Most of the nurses we dealt with were fantastic. But every once in a while, you got one. And that was a good way to pay him back
1: well yeah and 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 if you e m s you're going to the same hospital most of the time, so you're making four, five, six, ten runs a night to the same hospital, so you've got a feel of who's working the e r, you know what I mean, they know who you are, you know who they are. You know what I mean? Like, cops, we just kind of visit through there. I mean, you're, you're going back and forth. That's like us going to Bronx Central Booking or Manhattan Central Booking lodging Prisoners. It's like, oh, I got to deal with this fucking jerk off at intake. You know, So I get it. Like, yeah, you know who's working. And if you've got a nurse
0: ratchet, and some of them are. But on the other hand, I'll tell you a quick story. I had a guy that was that – was, uh, I think he was an overdose. I forget. He was an asshole either way. But he's in the back of my ambulance. He's telling me, listen, I got to go to the bathroom, man. I said, look, we got five minutes. You got to hold it. And we we got just about to the hospital, and he pissed all over the place. And you know, it's my ambulance; I got to clean, Holy I got to clean that up. mess up. But he let his bladder go; it was everywhere. So we got him into the ER, and I had a great relationship with one of the nurses. And I said, "Listen, you know, he's having some trouble holding his urine. He's he's going to need a Foley." And uh, we had a little conversation about how big, and we just settled on the biggest one they had, and they jammed that thing right into him. So I like to think that I ordered a Foley hit on this guy for pissing in the back of my ambulance.
1: You know, it's funny. Um, I was just telling you off air, I've got two nephews and, uh, you know, they, they never knew me as an act, you know, as a cop. You know, I, I've been retired after they were born. And, uh, when they were little, you, it's just funny. You got to watch what you tell kids. And, you know, i t- when they're little, they're fascinated that their uncle was a police officer and a detective. Right. So, um, their dad. Takes them to like the local police department's got like a uh, all the police cars and all the you know all the equipment and stuff for the little kids to look at and stuff. So there's a cop there and he tells my nephew. He goes, "Hey, do you want to climb in the back seat of a police car?" He goes, "No, my uncle says that people piss back there all the time." <laughs> and The guy goes, "How do you know that?" And he goes, "Oh, he goes, he goes, my uncle told me." My, my buddy's like, i, I I'm sorry. He goes, yeah, his uncle worked for the New York City Police Department. I'm like, yeah, you never want to sit in the backseat of a police car, man. That shit's nasty. Not voluntarily, no. Did I tell you the last time I was on? Did I tell Did I tell, Did I tell, did I tell tell any of the stories from a chapter in my book called Sickness, Health, and Fat Bastards? <laughs> no, I don't think you did. I would have remembered that. Okay, so in my book, NYPD Law and Disorder, I've got a chapter called Sickness, Health, and Fat Bastards. And that chapter deals with – overweight cops. Cause people always say to me like how I, I just saw like this 300 pound cop. Like how does that work? Like do, they don't like get rid of them and stuff. And I'm like, listen, this is the way it is. Once you get hired, you're like a made guy in the mafia. It's very difficult to get rid of you. So, you know, you, you know, I, I was far from a Navy seal when I got hired, but I was in good shape. I was 21 years old. I worked out. But, I mean, you had chubby, overweight people coming on the job that just got in under the wire at the police academy. And the police academy was was not difficult at all. And that was 30-something years ago. God only knows what it's like now. But you would see in different precincts, you know, like overweight cops. And I like to tell the story. I was working in a Bronx precinct. And the police cars go 24-7 until they break down. So if you and I are working together – more than likely, we're getting so we're doing the four to twelve. We're probably getting the same car every night, every night from the from the say Dave shift people, right? So there were these two fat female cops in my precinct. They were heifers, and me and my partner would get the car every night, and you'd look in the fucking back seat, McDonald bags, Dunkin' Donuts, fucking sandwich wrappers. It was like they were grazing. It was like a who's who buffet of of you know their tour of the fucking precinct, right? So we'd spend like 10 minutes cleaning out the fucking back seat, right? But the thing was, these two women both weighed in excess of 250 pounds each, right? So I don't know if you I'm talking cars, but if you remember the old Chevy Caprices, they had bench seats, they weren't bucket seats, it was a long bench. Well, these two fat chicks with their tonnage would break the supports in the fucking in the car after like three months. Right. So me and my partner get in the car and you step on the gas and you're fucking sailing into the back seat because the fucking bench seat isn't anchored in. So I used to go to a local dairy in the precinct and I would, I would fucking take milk crates. They'd give me milk crates and I'd line the back seat. Right. So where your legs go in the back seat. So this way we, we had some kind of stability, you know, and, and brace. Right. But then if we had an arrest, we had to tell him, you know, hold that motherfucker. Take the take the contain take the milk crates out. Put them in the back seat and put the bad guys in and drive really slow back to the precinct. So, what wound up happening with these two? I was actually their demise. Um, I had court one day. I come back from court, or it was something. I was doing a day shift for whatever reason, and I got into a foot chase with a burglary suspect. And I'm fucking chasing this guy and I'm putting it over the radio where I'm going, right? And as I'm chasing him, I spot the two female cops, right? And they're out of the car writing parking tickets. And I and I'm yelling, like, come in. I'm, you know, I'm going. It was on Broadway. And I'm like, I'm yelling. And I see one of them pick up their radio so they hear it coming, right? The two of them pretended they didn't see me as I ran by because they didn't want to get involved in it, right? And I motherfucked them as I was chasing them and chasing the kid, right? Finally catch the kid. I make the arrest. And it's funny thing. I locked that kid up so many times. Um, what wound up happening is I'm in the station house with the arrest, right? They come in at the end of their shift and I just fucking lose it. I'm motherfucking them in front of, you know, in front of the desk and the sergeant's like, whoa, 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 what happened? So he pulls me inside. He goes, What happened? I said, I'll tell you what happened. I said, I'm in a foot chase. I says, I ran right past the two of them. I said, they didn't, they didn't try to even put their foot out to to trip him. They didn't try to help me. They didn't jump in their car and try to cut him off. So what he wound up doing was he split them up. Broke up the part, you know, partnership, and he put them on footposts for a while at opposite ends of the precinct, hoping that walking around would, you know, kind of decrease their tonnage. But it didn't do anything. I don't think you
0: could say most of that stuff today.
1: <laughs> I think I just did. So, um, so let, let's see. Sickness, I think health, you did. Well, I you're asked. not on the
0: job anymore, so.
1: No. Oh no, I know. So there was a cop in my precinct, right? They used to call him Whiplash Willie, and when I got to the precinct, he was on restricted duty, which meant he was injured, right? And the guy was so full of shit. Like he, he, he fucking played this thing up with a fucking foam collar. You know what I mean? And he was involved. It was a fender bender. His partner was driving. It was a fender bender and he was suing his partner. And then the wife got in on it and the wife was suing his partner saying that his dick didn't work. Like, so, so she was, she was suing the partner too. Right? So everybody fucking hated this guy and he was just a useless sack of shit. But anyway, What winds up happening is our delegate was a real Yenta and uh, one day comes running over Goes, I got to tell you a story. I got to tell you a story. I go, what happened? He goes, you know, whiplash Willie's been trying to get three quarters, which is tax free disability for years. I said, yeah, he goes, he goes the other day, he goes, we get called out to health. He gets called out to health service division. And they told him to bring his delegate. He goes, so I went with him. He goes, and on the ride out there, all he's talking about is how he's going to spend his money and fuck this and I'm out of here and blah, 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 blah. He goes, we get out to health service division. They put us in a room and they wheel in. I mean, this is old school. They wheel in a television set, and a VCR, probably fucking Betamax. And they tell him to take a seat. And and uh, this sergeant lieutenant from the health service division pops in a couple of uh, pops in a VHS tape, and it's video of Whiplash Willie in his house in upstate New York, like on his roof doing shit, unloading sacks of fucking concrete from his truck. Like they followed him. It's the same thing like an insurance company would do, like when you're you know trying to get out. So so they they fucking nailed him, and they said, well. This is bullshit. You're not getting fucking tax-free disability, and that house that you said that's up in Orange County, it's really in Dutchess County. So you'll be selling your fucking house or retiring from the NYPD because with the NYPD, you can only live in the five boroughs and then the other designated counties, which is Nassau and Suffolk out in the island, and then Westchester, Putnam. Rockland and Orange. So if you live above that, I mean you're starting to go to Cow Country that you're starting to go where like the New York State prison system is up in Dutchess. Um they don't want you living that far away. So he got fucked. And the funny thing is, he he left the job. He just um I, I think they forced him off, but that chapter's got tons of stories about guys trying to get, we had a, a sergeant, he was Portuguese, he was a fucking Elvis impersonator. Guy was jacked and he was trying to get out on three quarters disability and no one wanted to drive the fucking guy because every time you work with him, he got hurt and then he wanted you to sign the witness statement for him. So guys didn't even want to get involved with this fucking guy and uh he goes down for his, um His appointment before the medical board, his attorney is there and they're they're showing MRIs and x-rays and shit. The doctors are talking. But the fucking guy never stopped lifting weights, right? So he's wearing a fucking medium shirt where he should be wearing an extra large. Like, the guy's fucking cut like a motherfucker, right? And finally, one of the doctors says, well, well, uh, I can't. I can't. He goes, this guy just looks like he just won a a weightlifting competition. He's he's not getting fucking disability. So – Portuguese Elvis actually resigned and he's an Elvis impersonator out in New Jersey swinging his hips for old ladies in the Atlantic City area.
0: Not a bad way to make a living compared to some other ways you can do it. So probably probably not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, but he was a sergeant like he was making good money. Hey, as we as we get close to wrapping this thing up, give me give me your last best story. Knock me off my. Ch- I mean, the, the, the two girls in the car probably was was one of the best ones I've heard tonight. But tell me one more. Make me fall off uh, my chair.
1: Lance. Did I did I tell you the Hansel and Gretel story?
0: No, I don't think you did. But you were going to. You you had uh, put that down.
1: Early '90s, going out to bars, young guys. You know, there was this cop bar we all used to go to, and you'd be talking to girls at the bar, and there was this cop from another precinct. And in his spare time, he was an amateur magician. So you're at the bar talking to the ladies. This fucking guy comes over and he's pulling flowers out of his fucking sleeve and the gold coins behind the ear. Essentially, he's cock blocking everybody with magic. So his old partner, who I wound up working with years later, we used to call him cancer because he killed more people than cancer. But that's another story. He worked with him. And uh, I says, get this fucking guy out of here. And he goes, you know, Vic, he goes, if he took his police work, if he took police work as seriously as making balloon animals in the car for his weekend gig, he'd be the greatest crime fighter of all time. He goes, he's just so fucking lazy. A couple of weeks later, they get called out to a basement apartment in the Bronx. 911 calls for help. Caller hangs up. They go into this subterranean basement. It's six stories high. And uh, there's two doors. They bang on door number one. Nobody answers the door. My old partner, cancer goes to bang on door number two. And the magician who's lazy goes, nah, fuck it. Come on, let's get out of here. My partner goes again to bang on door number two. He says, come on, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. This is bullshit. Let's get out of here. It's the midnight. If any, we made all this noise, someone would have come out. They leave. What they didn't realize is behind door number two, the super was selling Coke out of the apartment. He falls behind. He gets addicted to it. He falls behind on his wholesaler. So in the drug world, You know, they don't cancel your cable or send friendly notices. They're going to kill this guy. So he knows he's got a problem and he ain't answering the door. So they do an old gypsy trick. They show up with a hot looking chick. They knock on the door and they put her face in front of the door. He sees, you know, a hot looking chick. He figures found money. He opens the door. These two Albanian guys and the woman. Char- bum rush him into the apartment they pistol whipping him where's the money where's the drugs he doesn't have the answers they shoot him in the head they roll him up in a carpet they drag him out of the apartment and they throw him in the furnace of the building so while he's going up like a puerto rican fire log they go back into the apartment and they start ransacking it while they're inside cancer and the magician are outside now and they're knocking on doors so Inside the apartment, these guys are like, oh, fuck, what are we going to do? So they come up with a plan. They tell the female, listen, these two fucking cops knock on the door. Let them in. Start yelling in Yugoslavian and point to the kitchen and lead them down the hallway. When you get past the threshold of this bedroom, throw yourself on the floor. We'll come out from behind and we'll kill them. And then we'll throw them in the furnace. We'll go for the trifecta. And then we'll get the fuck out of here because they had to commit. So what winds up happening is they don't knock on the door. So a week or two later, the super is nowhere to be found. The guy's got family. They want to know what happened to him. They call the police. The detectives get involved. Detectives show up, and they see that there was a 911 call there a week or two before. So they bring in my old partner and the magician. They go, you know, did you see anything suspicious? What happened? And we knocked on one door. We didn't knock on the other door. But my old partner was a great cop. On the way out, when they were leaving, he saw a car parked in a fire hydrant and wrote it a parking ticket. That was the getaway car. So through the parking ticket, they were able to trace the car to the female. Once they grabbed her, man, she, she, you know, she's given up everything trying to, you know, distance herself, but in for a penny, in for a pound. And they were able to lock up all of them. So that's a story. That's that story is in one of my books. It's
0: called last night. A magician saved <laughs> my life. Well, definitely a good, good story. Anything else you want to throw out there while I got you on the line? Um, before I invite you to come back and do it again. What do you want to hear, man? I don't know. What do you got? Do you I got? walked into a cockfight. Oh, Jesus.
1: <laughs> I, I fucking I walked into a fucking cockfight. Now, I was looking for stolen Vespa motorcycles, right? I'm, go- I'm going into these basement apartments. I'm banging on doors. I want the supers to let me into their common area where they hide snowblowers and bicycles and motorcycles because I'm looking for these stolen Vespas in the South Bronx. Every super can't wait to show me his subterranean lair, right? The last door I go to, the guy looked like fucking Tattoo from Fantasy Island. He was stoned out of his mind with this fucking jet black shoe polish hair, right? I'm like, can I see the common area? And he's shitting bricks. He's dropping his, fuzz. see, see, see. He's dropping his keys, right? Like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? He opens up this, he, it, it was a, a, like a, a, a an asp on a, and he opens up the lock and pulls this thing and opens up these partition doors, puts on the lights, and there had to be 50 roosters and hens running around on the fucking floor. I'm like, what the fuck? And then stacked up in pods was like another 50 birds. Those must have been the fighting cocks, right? Because they, did, they, they didn't want them just like roaming around with the other birds. And I'm like, I know what this is. Like, this is a fucking gladiator school for cockfighting, right? There's so much more to the story because I was warned a million and one times just come in with auto crime. I had made a gambling arrest. I had made a gun arrest. My lieutenant like fucking stick to fucking auto crime. So I go, all right, Poppy, lock it up. And he goes, it's okay. I said, it's okay. He goes, you sure? I said, yeah, I don't give a fuck. Right. We leave. Right. I call the office. I'm like, listen. Get the fucking cavalry here. I just walked into a fucking cockfighting ring. We'll call the ASPCA. You know how much fucking overtime we're going to make? So my sergeant didn't see the big picture, right? He goes, what did the lieutenant tell you? Stick to fucking auto crime. I go, listen, he lives for shit like this. This, my lieutenant was one of these guys where he always wanted, he was always in search of a press conference. He always had his nose pressed against the glass. He always wanted to be, he was like Lieutenant Dan. Like he, he just, he was always in it for the glory and he always fell short. So he goes, he left for the day. He goes, I'm telling you, he goes, give it to the fucking ASPCAs all right. I call the ASPCA up. Do you remember there was this television show in the 90s on Animal, on Animal Planet? It's called Animal Precinct on Animal Planet. It was the ASPCA police. And they would go around and, and like lock people up for kicking their dog or something. So anyway, I call them up and I get the guy that I see on television that puts me to sleep at night. And I gave it to him. I says, listen, here's the apartment. Here's all this shit. He goes, all right, listen. He goes, we're going to look into this. He goes, if we get a warrant, I'm going to call you. I said, all right. Fucking forget the whole fucking thing, right? A month later, I took a couple of days off, and I'm helping my dad put a uh, a fence in the backyard, right? This ASPCA cop calls me, and he goes, listen, we're going to fucking hit this place. This is going to be fucking huge. Do, do you want to come on the warrant make some overtime? I says, I can't. I said, I'm helping my dad, but, you know, you know, go with God, man. Do it. Thanks, right? The next day, man, it's all over the papers. Largest cockfighting ring in New York City, cracked by the ASPCA police, right? I come into work the next day, and my sergeant goes, was that Was that what you were talking about? I said, yeah. He should have just kept his fucking mouth shut. He goes and tells my lieutenant who blows a gasket, what the fuck is the matter with you? He's fucking screaming. I go, you told me to stick to auto crime. I mean, there's more to that story, but, and that's in my book, NYPD Law. Oh, wait. got a copy. Oh, yeah. That's in my book, NYPD Law and Disorder. So, yeah, I broke up. Well, I was involved in the largest cockfighting ring.
0: Well, Vic, you didn't disappoint. Those are some great stories. And for our listeners, go out and get the books because if they're as good as these stories that you're telling on the podcast, the books are going to be fantastic. But I just want to take a second and thank you for spending uh, about a half hour, 45 minutes with me, telling me some stories, making me relive some of my days in New York City. Uh, It was great laughing with you, great listening to your stories. And I, I really hope that you'll come back again and share some more. I think everybody listening really got a kick out of everything that you said tonight so thank you for being thank you phil i appreciate it if you enjoyed this podcast please take a minute and give us a five-star review on apple podcasts or whichever podcast platform you enjoy stories from the road is a brown dogs media group production this one-man show is written edited and produced by phil klein show notes are written by jennifer rowick if you have a story you would like to share please contact us at stories from the at gmail.com To learn more about this show, please visit storiesfromtheroadpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.